Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ken and worship team. It's good to see you this morning. And uh, such an honor to be a part of this church, and I, and I mean that deeply. Um, part of the joy I have um, getting to be a pastor here at Solid Rock has to do with the people I get to lead with. Um, I love leading with our worship team, and one of our worship philosophies is uh, that they are not the worship leaders, but they're actually the lead worshipers, and they lead us in. And so I love when uh, they back off of the microphones and the saints sing out in worship. It blesses my heart, it blesses their heart, and that's what we're after. And, uh, and I love that they lead us to sing hard things that are true. Uh, Lord, though you slay me, yet I will worship. It's a hard thing to sing, and it's a harder thing to live out but it's a truth that's rooted in the goodness of God and trusting in God in the midst of circumstances and current realities that may look like God is not in control or may look like God has forsaken me or may be incredibly painful. And so today we're going to be talking about uh, having hope in the midst of life circumstances. And I could almost say it this way, having hope regardless of life's circumstances or having hope that's not contingent upon life's circumstances. That's where we're going to be going this morning. We're going to be in Romans starting in chapter 4. We're going to be at the end in verse 18 and we're going to venture over into chapter 5, the first five verses today. So if you want to grab a Bible, if you don't have one, we have them in the seats underneath. Uh, We're going to be uh, again in Romans chapter 4 to get started starting in verse 18. Just a couple things to bring us up to speed if you're just stepping in for the first time today. Uh, We're in a series this year walking through uh, the New Testament letters that were written to the church. And as a church, we're reading them as such, asking God, how can we be changed and transformed to look more like you and more like the bride you call us to be? And in the process, we're walking through Paul's letters. And so we're in the book of or the letter of Romans and so far, we've made it through chapter 4. Now, the framework of Romans is, is really interesting. It helps to understand Romans when you understand the framework. Um, the first four chapters leading up to chapter four seventeen is primarily Paul reminding the church of God fulfilling his promises in Christ to make the unrighteous righteous by faith. And then we turn a corner at 4.18 as we begin to look at the rest of the letter Paul wrote where he begins to point us forward now because of faith, hoping in something in the future, that God is still on his throne fulfilling his promises as we move forward. And so the corner we turn, the segue, if you will, that Paul uses between just understanding what we have today in Christ by faith and then the latter half of the letter that's more about looking forward to what God promises that we have in faith is a section on hoping in the midst of hopelessness beginning in chapter 4 verse 18. A couple of things I want to bring up before we get into it. Um, there, it's no doubt that um, we live in a world of constant hopelessness. Um, I, I think that I am understating it when I say if you pull up the news headlines today, you're going to see, you're going to read lines of despair and what seems like hopelessness, darkness, evil, from the Eastern European crisis to the crisis in Iraq and Syria, uh, and, and we could just continue going on even here in the United States, in Missouri, uh, situation after situation, event after event, headline after headline seems to declare that God is not in control and that evil is abounding. So I want to give us the Bible's perspective on what we're seeing and even pull it then into a personal note. 
So here's what the Bible says to us as we read it from cover to cover. The opening is the story of what is good. Matter of fact, God says it seven times. It is good. It is very good. And then he rests. Well, shortly after that, as man begins to fulfill his God-given purpose to bear the image and have dominion over the earth, we begin to write our own story. And so the serpent comes in and deceives Adam and Eve and talks them into a a different set of beliefs, something that is almost true, if you will, and God's word gets distorted, they bite in, sin takes place, and several things happen throughout the rest of the story. Okay, so here's what happens at Genesis 3 on. One, the relationship between God and Adam is severed. It's why God comes into the scene right after that and he says, Adam, where are you? Adam's hiding from God. The relationship has been fractured. But something else has happened as you move forward in human history from Genesis 3 forward is the shadow of sin and death has been cast across the human story. And so as you read the Old Testament, you're going to find lots of accounts of depravity and evil and suffering Noah's Ark and Sodom and Gomorrah aren't the only rough stories in the Old Testament. It's story after story after story of struggle. Even the great men and women of the faith struggled themselves with sin, with temptation, with doubt. And so as you read the Bible, it begins to explain this valley of the shadow of death that we walk among even currently. Explaining why the headlines continue to reveal that evil is running rampant. Satan is still working, prowling like a lion, seeking to devour, to kill, to destroy, to tear down, to divide, to break. And ultimately, he has his aim set on you. And many of you know that firsthand. You've experienced it through temptation, through sin, through suffering, through your own despair. And so while we look at a world that is shrouded with darkness and evil... We know it personally in our own experience. Many of you have struggled with your former version of depression on, a, on, on your own level. Many of us at different levels. Uh, many of us have had suicidal thoughts. We've been to that place of despair where we thought, you know what, it might be better just to end it here than to move on. Um, praise God that those of you who are in this room uh, are still here. Uh, but the reality is with, with uh, you know, the story of Robin Williams, right? A, a guy who seemed like he had it all. The icon of what it means to be joyous. A man who was always full of laughter, giving off laughter to others. Uh, who had made his way to the top in the comedian world, in the acting world. Uh, who had a lot of fortune, a lot of fame. But at the, end of, at the end of his life, found himself in despair. Where at least from his perspective, he thought it would be better to end his life than to continue living. Again, an example of living under this cover and the shroud of darkness of this current world. Um, just last Wednesday, um, my wife's a teacher in the uh, Fort Worth School District, got a text from Howie to pray, a uh, senior at Eastern Hills, a young lady who was in the fire academy, a senior at Eastern Hills, had taken her own life by jumping off a bridge on the east side of Fort Worth. Whatever the situation was, she had found herself in a place of darkness and despair where it seemed like at least from her perspective, the better option was to end it than to go on. So today we're going to read Paul's counsel as he points us first to Abraham on how we as people of faith find hope, latch on to hope, tether ourselves to hope, even in the midst of hopelessness. And we'll begin in verse 18, Romans 4, with a remarkable phrase. As Paul describes Abraham's faith, he says this, In hope, the he is Abraham, in hope 
he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. Another way to word that would be in the midst of hopelessness, Abraham had hope. Now, specifically, I appreciate Paul giving us some, just some real-life examples of what was going on in Abraham's heart that caused him to feel hopelessness, okay? So here's what is happening in Abraham's story. Genesis 12, God enters into Abraham's life and says, Abraham, I want to do something through you. I'm going to make a promise to you that will transcend you and your descendants to the nations. Here's the promise. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and you're going to have a lot of children, And through your children, through your offspring, the nations will be blessed. Now, what a remarkable promise for God to make to this man. And so we see, first of all, uh, first off, Abraham responds with faith. He believes God. He packs things up, packs up his family, packs up his wife, pack up what belongings they can travel with, and they begin to head out. But if you follow the story of Abraham, you don't even finish chapter 12 before doubt begins to set in. And we find Abraham and his wife, because of famine, moving into Egypt. And he's scared that if if the people of Egypt find out that Sarah is his wife, they're going to kill Abraham and take Sarah from him. And so he he conjures up a lie to protect himself and her. And ultimately, he is what? Trusting in himself, not the promises of God. Just in that very chapter that the promise was made. Now, as we see the doubt of Abraham unfold... Um, There are two obvious things that Paul is going to bring up here. Um, Is this, that in the midst of God making that promise, two things were true. One, Abraham was was an old fella. He was a man of many years. Okay, So old, so can you imagine men uh, coming to you at a very old age saying, oh, by the way, you're going to have some kids. Okay, So already a sense of, "Mm, I don't know if this is going to work. But to, to make it even harder, his wife was barren. And while we read past that part of the story as just one of the facts of what's going on, it obviously was a big deal in the life and the heart of Abraham and Sarah. And and many of you who have experienced infertility or barrenness know the great struggle uh, of of trying and wanting to have kids and not being able to. And we're going to see that that's even part of Abraham's struggle is he struggled with, with doubt. Um, I've had the opportunity to counsel with families, with, with ladies who, uh, who are struggling to get pregnant. And, you know, and early on, when, 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 when we're young, uh, there's, there's more hope. But as, as we get older, right, the, the hope begins to wane, and it seems to be more and more impossible. And questions that, that come up are, you know, what did I do wrong? Is this my fault? Does God not trust me with kids? Does my spouse blame me? And so... Just know that there was a lot of struggling going on for Abraham as he wanted to believe God. God made me a promise, Sarah. We're going to have kids, and we're going to have a lot of them. They didn't immediately have kids, and there was a struggle. Look at verse 19. Talking again about Abraham, he did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body. So we know that was part of his struggle. He thought about I'm an old man, look at what he says, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So if you read the story of Abraham, those things gave him pause. Those those two things gave him reason to, to doubt and he struggled. But ultimately at the end of the story, as Paul looks back, he says this about Abraham, even in the midst of those things being true, those true realities, he did not weaken in faith. Wait a second. 
I mean, first chapter, it looks like he's weakening in faith, making up lies, trying to protect his own skin and keep his wife. And, and you can continue on the story. You'll see these, these moments of seemingly doubt. Faith is not the absence of dealing with reality. I think somehow we've, we've bought into this idea that if I'm going to have faith, then I can't wrestle with current reality. It's not godly then to think about the things that have to be overcome. Abraham was a man who struggled with the current reality, and ultimately he was accredited as a man of faith, because ultimately... Faith is not the absence of dealing with reality. Faith is walking with an unwavering hope, as we'll see in Abraham's example, in the midst of uncertain reality. So many of us, when we find ourselves in desperate situations, we pray out to God, change this circumstance. Change the situation. I don't like what's going on here. And if we're not careful, we'll find our faith contingent upon God answering that prayer. Right, And so what are we saying? My hope is in circumstances, not the one who makes promises in the midst of uncertain circumstances. Faith is walking with an unwavering hope in the midst of uncertain reality. Look at what Paul goes to next in verse 20. Still talking about Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Was there a temptation for unbelief for Abraham? Yeah. Were there some valiant examples where God said, Abraham, believe me to do this, and Abraham did it? Yeah, both. And so the fact that Abraham struggled, and his wife as well, overall didn't define him as a man of faith or not faith. There was room for him to struggle, room for him to doubt, room for him to make mistakes, and for God to redeem and keep moving forward. And many of us have been in those seasons and those places where we're wrestling maybe with doubt, and we automatically go to, well, I must not be a Christian then. Or God doesn't love me, or God can't hear me. God has forsaken me. And we see Abraham as a prime example here of a man who knew what it was to struggle. To struggle with unbelief. Yet in the end, he did not waver. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Instead, he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Walking in faith includes struggling with doubt while I stand on the promises of God. Both. While I stand on the promises of God. Um, Just a few of my own personal experiences with struggling with doubt and and depression. Before I got married, I went through uh, about two to three years of just just darkness. And the only way I could describe it is depression. Um, Sought out many different... Uh, remedies for what I was experiencing, uh, physical health, changing my diet, medications, counseling, both in the church and outside of the church. And, and for me, ultimately, what it was in the end was staying tethered to the promises of God as I weathered the storm and came out on the other side. And I can share with you turning points in that story where certain believers uh, were, were, were part of that healing process and that transition process, but ultimately... What I went in believing was what tethered me and anchored me through that entire storm. It wasn't that my belief in God had changed as much as I came out of it believing more, more anchored, more convinced that God is on his throne and he is good, despite what may be going on in my life. Now, there were moments, though, where I got angry. 
and thought, God, if you love me, you wouldn't be letting me go through this. If you, if you truly are real, you would respond to my prayer and change my circumstances. And all the while, God was good and his patience with me as he continued to walk with me through that season, refining me for what he had for me in the future. I'll never forget you know, the struggle that, that Hallie and I had early on. Our, our first pregnancy ended in miscarriage. And I know many of you have experienced that and the, um, just the spiritual battle that ensues after that. You know, is, it, is this my fault? Is God punishing me? You know, what may be going on here? And, and you know, once you know, our situation began to unfold, the first two or three days were like that um, for both of us at different times. Uh, questioning, does God not trust us to be parents at this point? You know, what, what's going on here? And, uh, and I'll never forget my wife finding a beautiful position of worship in the the, the verse that says, the Lord gives and he takes away. You You know, the song we just sang was sprinkled with truths from Scripture, many from Job, some from the Psalms. God is good in the midst of my hurt and brokenness, and the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And my wife, I watched her stand as a daughter of the Most High God and say, yet I will worship. Walking in faith includes struggling with doubt while I, while you, while we stay tethered to the promises of God. Now what we're going to see here emerging in the text and throughout the sermon are two competing things for our trust for our affections, for our attention. One are the circumstances of our lives and the other are the promises of God. And so when the circumstances are going well, it's easier to believe the promises of God, right? He has plans to prosper us and not to harm us. He wants good for our lives. The Lord is good all the time, all the time. The Lord is good. But then when we experience a time that doesn't seem good, we have an option. Am I gonna trust the promises that I so quickly believe when things are going well? Or am I going to abandon? Am I going to walk away from the things that I once proclaimed to be true? Many examples in the scriptures of men and women struggling uh, to believe God, to push forward in the midst of despair, could walk through multiples. I think the nation of Israel just early on is a great example. Um, Just after they are rescued from Egypt, they find themselves at the Red Sea in Exodus 14, and they turn and look, and here comes Pharaoh's army and immediately they move into doubt forgetting that the Lord had rescued and they begin to complain and and say what was the what what was the problem God it wasn't enough graveyards back in Egypt you brought us out here to kill us Is, is that what you're doing like that was the first response just a few chapters later they're wandering through the wilderness looking for for food and they and they say to God God wouldn't it have been better for us to die with you back in Egypt where we had food now you brought us out here to die we don't have food, and then just a chapter later, they're, they're thirsty, and they make the same foolish proclamation in the face of God as they respond in anger, saying, God, you brought us out here that our children and our livestock might die of thirst, and all along, God is being patient with them, fulfilling his promise. Now, um, I'm a very patient dad to a certain extent, and there's a place where my children can cross, and I take patience and water it up and throw it out the window and go, oh, you want to go? Let's go. And we see that the, kin- the, the anger of God is kindled through the unfolding story through, through Exodus. It tells us God's anger 
was being kindled, yet he chose to be patient and he fulfilled ultimately his promise. I love that God tethers himself to his own promises. His character is such that he can't not keep a promise despite us. And that's true in your own life. As God has promised you and you have believed him and have gone through seasons of fighting against him, rebelling, giving in to temptation, fooling around with doubt, God has made a promise to you that he will keep as long as your faith is rooted in his promises and not in circumstances. And so we see that Abraham believed against a hope. Now we're going to move into chapter 5 where Paul begins to pull this into application for our own lives. Starting in verse 1, therefore means Paul still has what he just said on his mind. Okay, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that was last week's sermon, we've been made right, we've been given this right relationship and access to God by faith. We've been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the things we have because we believe like Abraham believed. Access to God's presence. We have peace. Verse 2. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice, not just in what we have right now, but in hope of the glory of God. This is what we have. Part of the promise that I have accepted as a Christian. The forgiveness that I have accepted from Christ by faith. That promise comes to me with a future leaning, right? I mean, it's not all and done, I'm ready to go. Like, there's still a work God is doing in my life. And, and so even when I say by faith, Jesus, I need your forgiveness, I need you to come into my life, I, I surrender to you. In that moment, he does, and by faith, I'm made alive, and forgiveness takes place, and, and transformation begins. A transformation that won't be finalized until we step, in, step into eternity, And so even our own salvation includes a forward leaning of hope. And so Paul makes this transition that our faith in Christ isn't just about what's happening right now. It's also about what's going to happen, what we're clinging to, what we're looking forward to in the future. And we have a hope that we rejoice in in the glory of God. And so I would say this as we move forward, and, and, and we're, this will help us get set up for verse 3. Walking in faith requires that I put my hope in the future promises of God as I live in the struggles of today. So we've already talked about Abraham having a hope in the midst of hopelessness. We're going to talk now about rejoicing in our sufferings. And ultimately, a connection here, walking with faith requires that I put my hope in the future promises of God as I live in the struggles of today. You might even say above and beyond the circumstances that I experience. Now, verse 3 is a remarkable verse that I didn't like the first probably 10 times I read it. Let's read the first part of it. Paul says, not only that, not only do we have peace and grace and this beautiful promise that we're hanging on to, looking forward, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, Two things, I believe, are, are um, to come to mind as we read this. A very simple word, the word in here, um, sets up the idea that we're to rejoice in the midst of. Okay, in the midst of our circumstances. So it's not just in hindsight that we rejoice, but that we find a place to stand and rejoice in the midst of. 
suffering, but the word also implies a sense of because of, so that even through our sufferings, we're learning how to rejoice. Both are happening. Both are happening. We'll talk more as we move forward now into chapter 5 of how this happens in our hearts as we begin to be refined by our experiences and our circumstances. But ultimately, Paul starts with this. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, the, the natural response of the flesh in, in, in the midst of sufferings um, happens a number of ways, and you can probably relate with all of them. There's one sense of uh, responding to sufferings where the first thing we do is we say, what did I do wrong? Right? This must be my fault. So what sin did I commit that pushed God past the line of patience where he said, fine, wrath, boom, and he dumped suffering on my life. Right? So we step back and go, what did I do wrong? Another part of that is maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe I'm not believing enough. And so if I believed enough, life would go much smoother. But because it's not going smooth, it must be my faith. So we turn internal. Now, can our sin play into our suffering? Absolutely. Absolutely it can. Do we suffer at times as a result of our sinful behavior? Yes. But we have to understand there's a bigger story being written. And that when suffering takes place, it does not discredit the goodness of God. And sometimes suffering happens, and it's somebody else's fault. So then we look at external influences and we, the people around us, much like the story of Job, begin to give us all this great counsel about, you know, what did you do wrong? Maybe you haven't repented hard enough and try this, try that. Here's what worked for me. And we get, oftentimes get caught up in that process. Well, this worked for this person. It helped get them out of their depression. Or this worked for this person. It helped relieve the pain. Or when this person made this choice, the suffering seemed to end. And so we, we look to external sources Another thing I think that we probably all are guilty of is when suffering happens in our flesh, we blame God. And I think this is probably the most common. And it's kind of ironic that even those who don't profess to believe in God, all of a sudden when suffering hits, on some level seem to believe in God. And he gets the blame. Right? And, and even for Christ's followers, we, 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 we oftentimes turn to God in anger and bitterness. I, I can say that honestly, I've done that. I mean, I know there were moments of despair, especially in the midst of, the, of that period of depression in my life where I got frustrated with God. Why aren't you answering me? Aren't you fixing this? At that point, I'd been in ministry for almost four years. God, look at what all I've done for you. Why won't you take this away? And I began to blame God as though he owed me something. Now, I've yet to hear a person come into my office for counseling saying God owes me yet indirectly we say that a lot that's what's implied if God were good this wouldn't be happening to me and when I wrestled through those own thoughts myself got to a place where I asked the question what does God actually owe me he doesn't owe me anything and that began to shift my heart towards gratitude towards life itself but there was a very real struggling in my own heart and so that's what our flesh wants to do when suffering happens. Turn inwardly, look outwardly, blame God. And Paul offers up a different response. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now look at what he's going to do next. I want to, actually, let me, let me just bring up something right now. I think this would be good because I think it applies to probably some people in this room. 
One of the other things that we do as a result oftentimes of suffering or going through hardship is we pick up a new identity. And rather than being a person uh, with cancer, we become a cancer patient. And the suffering we're experiencing begins to define us. Rather than being a person who lost their job, we become unemployed. Um, Rather than being a person who's maybe been uh, raped or sexually molested, we become a rape victim. Now, not not minimizing the experience and the pain of all those events, but what we do is we pick up an identity in it. And we buy into a lie that somehow, in order oftentimes for people to understand how bad I'm hurting, I must become what I have experienced. So this now defines who I am. And there are a number of reasons for that. I want to say this to us today, to you today. Maybe somebody very specifically in this room needs to hear this. Your pain does not define who you are. It doesn't. Did did Abraham and Sarah and many other godly examples struggle with doubt and, and pain and suffering in a way that caused them to be angry or to want to take their own lives? Yes, but ultimately it didn't define who they are. God can redeem the most tragic experiences of your life, the ones that are self-induced and the ones that others have committed against you. He can redeem them all. Your pain does not have to define you. Just some examples from the Old Testament. I think examples we oftentimes gloss over. I I mentioned earlier the Israelites under Moses' lead and just three examples where they just turned in anger towards God. Didn't like their circumstances. Um, Elijah, famous prophet, go get her for God, right? Uh, do you remember, I don't know if you remember or not, but when, he, when Jezebel is pursuing him for his life, he sits down under a tree and has suicidal thoughts and says, God, I be, it would be better for you just to take my life from me right now. Now, did that moment of pain define who he was before God? No. There's a beautiful moment in the life ministry of Christ where uh, Jesus uh, takes a few of his disciples into this experience where he transfigures before their eyes and they're able to see him truly as the glorious son of God. It's called the transfiguration. And Jesus is there and there are two characters from the Old Testament with him, Moses and Elijah. Think of many other examples. Even Ruth had a moment where she had lost her husband and her two sons and her two daughter-in-laws uh, we're wanting to go with her back to the homeland, and she essentially wanted to go uh, back alone, to be alone and die as a widow. And this is where, uh, where Naomi and then Ruth steps up and says what? Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. We're going with you whether you like it or not. But in that moment, you know, there was a sense of like, don't come with me, because all that's going to happen if you come with me is more despair and darkness. Of course, uh, Jonah um, Jonah's a great example of what not to do in a lot of accounts, but I don't know if you know this or not. Um, he actually fulfills what God asked him to do in the beginning, even though he ran at first. And as he called Nineveh to repentance, the king responds with repentance and calls the people to repentance. And then chapter 4 begins with uh, the struggle inside of Jonah's heart. He's angry at God for being merciful to him and ultimately says, God, take my life. So a few examples I would even offer up to you from King David, the man after God's own heart. If you read through the Psalms, very honest about his despair and his struggle. Um, 
from Psalm 38. I just want to read a few verses to you to, to see inside the heart of a man who, who ultimately loved God, uh, but also dealt with, struggled with sin and suffering and darkness, and he lamented oftentimes and was honest about the way he felt. This is how David describes how he feels in Psalm 38, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. You ever felt that way? Verse 3, there is... No soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. Listen to this this description. For my sides are filled with burning There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart, O Lord. All my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. I would be willing to bet there are people in this room who feel like David just described a moment of your own life. I am hurting. I am in pain. My body physically aches because of the turmoil I'm in. And I look around me and everybody's abandoned me. Yet this same author, David, writes in Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. What is David saying? Which one is it? He's saying, in the midst of my despair and my struggle, I stay tethered to the one who is good. I was honest about my struggle and my suffering and and all my doubts. But at the end, I love how David ends his psalms. He turns back to worship. Honest about what he's struggling with and turns back to worship. What is he doing? He's staying tethered to the hope he has in God in the midst of uncertain circumstances. Now, Paul's going to take us to a very helpful place, I believe. Let's take these notes. Rather than finding my identity in what I experienced, my identity is found in God. Rather than defining who I am by what happens to me, I let God define who I am. God has made a promise that if I'll confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Even right now in my suffering, I feel like I must have done something to really make God mad. I'm going to hang on to that hope because I truly have confessed my sins. And what I'm experiencing right now is not the loss of my salvation or God having enough, but something else is going on. And I stayed tethered to the hope I have in God's promises Look at where Paul goes next. Knowing is the next part of verse 3. He knows something. When we see the word knowing, it implies we must learn something. Okay? Uh, two ways to learn the truths we're talking about today. One is living them out, and the other one is to read them in God's word and believe them. And the two coming together is a very healthy thing. When we read God's word, this is what's true. Though you slay me, yet I will worship. And then we walk through a period that feels like God is slaying us. What we've learned, what we know, holds us in the midst and so Paul says this, Here's, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that. 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Word produce here is a really powerful word. It's the idea of accomplishing or achieving. So as we strive forward for character, we need something to produce that in us. It's very much uh, an athletic word, the idea of endurance and producing endurance. And we know this from, from working out, uh, those of you who've made that, that attempt to work out, that uh, there's no gain to be had without pain, right? You, you can look on the walls of any gym and you're going to find these clever sayings, no pain, no gain, right? Pain is just weakness leaving the body and, and we know that, right? No true strength is to be had physically without pain, right? If there was another way, we would do it a different way, wouldn't we? We would take a pill, we would, right? we would do whatever it is to find strength and endurance and physical health and in a different way, but it's only had one way, right? Endurance comes from working hard, from meeting that place where you want to quit and doing what? Pressing on. Many of us struggle to do this on our own. That's why we need trainers. That's why we need people encouraging us, saying, no, no, you can do this. And I don't know if you've ever, uh, maybe just talking to a few select people here, but um, if you've ever experienced working out with a trainer or been in athletics with a coach who pushed you and been in that moment where you were just fiery mad and, and that anger then drove you to finish whatever it was you were doing, but in the end you look back with, with gratitude because you saw that that coach had your, your end result in mind and knew you could do it and pushed you towards it. Paul's using that same metaphoric expression here to describe our spiritual growth towards character and hope, that our suffering produces endurance. And in the same way, our physical body, so Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 8, that physical training has some value, but godliness has value in this life and the life to come. He's comparing our spiritual growth to our physical working out, understanding there's some principles there that transcend. And hardship is oftentimes that place in the gym or that place in training where what? We want to give up. Right? The place where we want to shrink back. We want to say, ah, this is not what I signed up for. And God draws us forward gently as a patient father with love. Trust me, this is to your good. And so Paul says that our suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. How does suffering produce character? Here's a few examples. Suffering refines your priorities. I will almost guarantee that suffering will refine your priorities. Because one of the first things that happens in the midst of suffering, all the things that we once value and held dear and pursued begin to crumble. And what was most important to us yesterday now doesn't matter as much. Many of you know this firsthand. Many of us have even witnessed this at the bedside of a person who had a terminal illness. All of a sudden, what? Priorities change. What used to be important isn't anymore. And they say things to us like, if I could go back... I would spend more time with my family, spend more time with my kids, be more patient with my spouse, live more for the glory of God. They say things to us. Why? Because suffering is refining priorities. And it happens even in your everyday struggle. Suffering also draws our, our arms upward to reach out for God. Suffering leaves us in a place oftentimes where there's no other option but to reach up to God. The place of deepest despair when you realize, I don't have the strength to keep going. I don't feel like I can make it. I don't think I can make it to tomorrow. 
I'm looking around me, and it seems like nobody is going to help me get there. What other option do I have right now? And in desperation, we reach up to a loving Father. I think that honors the Lord. I also believe that's his desire even when things are good, that we live as though everything depends on him. So suffering definitely draws our arms upwards. Uh, Here's another thing that I think happens in the midst of suffering. Suffering kills our idols. There's a significant difference between following your dream and living out a vision for your life. Suffering kills our idols. The things that we conjure up that will make us happy, the circumstances that we want for our life, they're called dreams. And oftentimes God will use suffering to refine those things in our life that we chase after that oftentimes become idols. How do we know that? Because when God takes them away, what happens? We turn away from God. We're angry. I was actually chasing after this dream and you took my dream away, God. Now I'm angry. Now I don't trust you anymore. You're not good. In the midst of suffering, God kills our idols, our hopes and dreams, all the things that aren't God's best for us. God has plans to prosper you and not to harm you, but he isn't going to give you a blank piece of paper and say, make up your own story. Why? Because you will not, I will not choose what's best. I'll choose what pleases my flesh. And so God uses suffering. And we see how God uses these experiences of hardship to shape our character. Much like working out produces strength and endurance. Our own character is refined and shaped in the midst of hardship. And then he goes on to say what? Character produces hope. This is where he started. Abraham hoped beyond a hope or in the midst of hopelessness. Suffering produces hope. Suffering illuminates our deep need for God. And suffering shows us the satisfaction that is found in God and God alone. We're going to end in just a minute looking at some examples from the Psalms um, of ultimately it's God's presence that sustains us in the midst of the valley of the shadow of darkness, in the midst of suffering and depression and moments of despair. It's God's presence that sustains us But suffering shows us that satisfaction is found in God and God alone. How does it do that? Because you and I, we set up our daily, weekly routine to pursue what we feel like will most satisfy us, right? And when that daily routine gets altered by some type of tragic event, unexpected circumstances, hardship sets in, or suffering, right? Our prescription for what should happen doesn't happen. And so we're left with, now what am I going to be satisfied by? What I had hoped for isn't going to happen. So now I've got to decide, do I just want to live unsatisfied or find a satisfaction in something else? And that's when we are in a great position for our hope to be founded in God, to say, I am satisfied in God and God alone. And that's where we get lyrics like the song we sang, though he slay me, yet I will worship. Because God is satisfaction enough for me. And this is where we're going to end I'll say this about Abraham, and it's true of us. Abraham's struggle built up his endurance. His endurance shaped his character. His character led him to trusting God more than he trusted circumstances. That's the story of Abraham unfolding. 
Romans 5, 5. I love that Paul left this for us to, to think on now. So suffering leads us to hope, and hope does not put us to what? Shame. Hope does not put us to shame. You know, shame is oftentimes one of the first responses of our flesh in the midst of suffering. To feel like God has abandoned us, that God is embarrassed to be around me, God has forsaken me. And Paul reminds us that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You read forward a little bit to Romans 8. Paul uh, talks about how God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's something I believe is true. God's love for me is more powerful than my suffering. Suffering does not mean God doesn't love me. Going through a hard time does not, believe, does not mean that God has forsaken me. If we're going to rejoice in our sufferings, we must understand God's love for me is more powerful than any suffering that I should experience. I love where Paul ends in Romans 8, talking about nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Death or famine, height nor depth, no suffering, no struggle, no, no angelic being. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing is more powerful than God's love for us. And this last thing, God's presence gives us hope in the midst of despair. God's presence gives us hope in the midst of despair. And I would actually pull that in with some earlier phrases that we filled in. So I'm walking through a moment of suffering and despair. What do I do? I stay tethered to the promises, the things that I believe are true despite what I'm experiencing, but I find my comfort in the very near and real presence of God. Many of you have been to funerals and heard Psalm 23 read aloud. I want to read it in light of what we just talked about. The Lord is my shepherd. That's how the psalmist describes God. He's, he walks with me. He stays with me. The Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, I shall not what? Want. That's an expression of satisfaction. Because God is with me and he's leading me. He's guiding me. I'm satisfied. He makes me lie down in green pastures. It's good. It's a good thing when the shepherd says, lie down and eat and rest. He leads me beside still waters. It's a good thing when the shepherd says, stop and drink. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But look at verse 4. This is kind of the same mindset. Even in suffering, we rejoice. Why? Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. God's presence. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, in the presence of horrible circumstances, God, I get to be with you. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Even in the midst of walking through the valley of the shadow of death, believing that goodness and mercy are there as well. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, none of what we heard today makes pain not painful. Does it? None of what we heard today makes suffering any less dark, painful, despairing. I mean, nothing about what we heard today 
makes depression something we want to happen tomorrow. Right? But what God's word has told us is that by faith in Christ, we've been justified. We have this right relationship with God. And he's given us a future hope that sustains us, that tethers us, that anchors us. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, the storm comes. But when your house is built on the things that I say and the storm comes, right, you you sustain. You weather the storm. What's the opposite? When you build your house on things that aren't true, shifting sand, the storm comes and it tears the whole thing apart. But either way, guess what? The storm is coming. Struggles are coming. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. Now, I hope in tomorrow's newspaper and online news headlines, we see a shift in all those situations towards peace, calmness. But here's what we must understand and believe. Our hope isn't contingent on that. The news can get worse, and we don't have to lose hope. The news can get worse. God is still on his throne, and he's still good. So here's what I would say, and I oftentimes say this in counseling. I can't make a promise to you that your suffering will end. If you were there today, that it would end today. I can't, because God hasn't promised that. But I can promise God is sovereign over the story of human history and that his plans are good and therefore he is sovereign over your story. I can promise that God is able and willing to redeem all that Satan has intended for evil against you and he can superintend all all that evil for good, for your good and his glory. Those things are true. I want to leave with a few questions of reflection on what we've heard today and um, and, and I want to invite you to move forward this week into the, the book of Romans, um, especially into Romans chapter 8. I think chapter 8 is a good second part of this conversation. We won't have time in this series to stop there very long. Um, but uh, but want you to, I want to invite you to Romans 8, a beautiful chapter that begins with, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and ends with, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We'll be there in a few weeks. We'll touch on it. But I just want to encourage you to go there already to continue what what Paul is bringing up here in the midst of suffering and hardship. As we do so, I want to reflect on these questions and invite the worship team to come back up. And so these are questions really for you to answer to yourself or maybe with your spouse or a close brother or sister in the faith, Um, but questions to begin between you and the Lord. Um, In what ways are you struggling to believe God today? Really, the main theme of what we heard so far is that these are the promises of God that we have by faith, by believing. In what ways are you struggling to believe God today? And then I want you to be honest. Is your struggle to believe God connected to a struggle uh, that you've walked through in your past? Something that happened to you or something that was a result of your choices? Are you still allowing your past to define who you are today in terms of struggling Maybe, maybe you're still doubting God on some level because of something that happened to you when you were a kid. Is your struggle to believe God connected to a struggle that you're experiencing right now? As soon as God fixes this, I'll be on his team. As soon as he fixes this, I'll be gung-ho for the Lord. But until he fixes it, I'm going to sit here and mourn and wait. 
In what ways do you allow what happens to you define who you are? If you lose your job tomorrow, are you a Christ follower who has lost your job or are you now an unemployed person? You just go on down those examples. And here's ultimately the question. Are you and I willing to lay down the identity of our life experiences? To no longer be defined by what has happened to us, what we've walked through, but rather instead finding our identity and trusting God to keep his promises. You know what God has said to you and about you is that if you believe and trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, you are now a child of the most high God and you've been adopted into his family and a table has been set. Even in the midst of having enemies and circumstances that are hard, a table has been set permanently between you and the Lord. That's what the promises of God's word say to you. If you've confessed your sins, they've been forgiven, all of them. Not just the the ones that, right? All of them. Even the ones you're still embarrassed about have been completely forgiven and you've been made right. Are we willing to trade our identity and our life experiences for the identity that we have in God and God alone? To believe what he says about us over and above what we're experiencing and what we might say about ourselves. I want to pray for you right now. Remind you that our prayer partners will be here at the front to pray over you. I know oftentimes when we talk about suffering and we get into this kind of conversation, things that we don't normally want to think about or talk about come up. And for many of you, that's probably happened today. And you're thinking, I can't wait for this to go back into the closet. Um, But before that happens, maybe God would say, you know what, how about we just bring this out into the light? Why don't you spend some time praying about it? Why don't you spend some time asking somebody to pray over you in this matter? And that's what our prayer partners are going to be here for at the front and at the back. Um, Our altar is open. You want to come down and kneel and just be before the Lord and pray. Our counseling rooms are open. Um, You may need to just get up and, and head out and just go be alone with the Lord or make a phone call. That's fine too. But what we want to do now is turn this over to the Holy Spirit to lead us as we respond to what is true. Let me pray for us. Prayer partners and worship team are coming forward. Father, we're so thankful that your character and your strength are not contingent upon how how well our life unfolds, God. Who you are is never in jeopardy in our lives. Yet, God, very honestly, we, like many men and women of the Bible, like Abraham and Moses, the people of Israel, like Jonah, like Elijah, like Naomi and Ruth, We find ourselves in despair. We find ourselves struggling to believe. We find ourselves struggling to believe that you haven't left us, God. This morning you remind us that you have not left us. That you are near to the brokenhearted. Father, just personally, I want to confess that you are worthy to be trusted whether tomorrow happens like I think it should happen or not. God, you are worthy to be trusted. God, in the moments of life's darkest and deepest despair. God, your purposes are never thwarted by our pain. So, Father, now we come.